there it is. There it is indeed. You know, um, do you feel different now that we're in another year? I never feel different. I don't either. I don't know if it's just me or am I not supposed, am I not right? Am I not right? Because I don't feel different. Um, Time really doesn't have all that much meaning anymore after last year. Everything just kind of rolls into the next thing. It's 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 always been like an avalanche. I guess that's true. I think the older we get, the more jaded we get. Um, But it is indeed a new year, and this is a new episode of Cinema Discovery Project. This is will will be our newest episode, or first episode of the year. After a little bit of a break. um, Yeah, about a a month, month and a half or so. Goes by it quick. goes by quick. I'll yeah, we that. had to take a little break. Uh, I I am now in in my new digs. Um, wasn't too far of a of a move, about thirty minutes. But uh, now I'm in my own new uh, setup here. Um, if we ever do video, maybe you'll get to see it one day. But yeah, I was to say you're, you're describing things that the, the audience. Yeah, can't I know, see. I know, but so they wouldn't know the difference between the old digs and the new. I know. Digs. I mean, I know. Yeah, yeah, but but. I feel good about it, so. <laughs> good, and that's the most important yeah. thing is that you feel is that you feel good yeah. about it. Um, so, today we decided that to have more of a relaxed episode to start off the new year, um, not really doing a too big of a focus on anything in specific, more of a casual kind of talk that Stephen and I usually have. Well, just I mean, on the we, yeah, we this is this will this will feel more 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 loose than usual. Um, Yes. Our typical episode, we focus on one film, um, and you know a lot of people are coming out with their best of 2020 lists right now. But thing is, is right. all of the films are not released yet, you know. And and being that the Academy Awards has gotten pushed back, a, like a, what about a month or so? I think um, it is. So yeah. a lot of movies are kind of getting more time to come out. So we're gonna we're gonna wait and maybe do it um, on our next episode, our our best of 2020. Right. Um, but. This week we decided that, you know, it is January, and typically January is looked at as a kind of dumping ground for for films that um, nobody wants to see. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the way it's been for a long time, up until like the last decade or so. Granted, it's still a dumping ground, but sometimes you get some diamonds in the rough, and we thought that we would just talk about, um, like. The uniqueness of January and kind of like some January gems. Yeah. I just made that up on the top, off the top yeah. of my head. Um, because there are some gems that come out in January. But doing research for this episode, I found that there is a concept of a dumping month or dumping months when it comes to the release schedule of the year. And I found that those months tend to be August and September and January and February. Now, that's kind of morphed over the last couple of years because there have been so many, like, uh, summer blockbusters that they get, you know, inevitably, you know, higher quality ones get pushed into October. And then usually September, you just start getting more of, you know, kind of, uh, you know, that post-summer blockbuster movies. But you also get that kind of pre pre-Oscar award season movies that tend to be, uh, some tend to be more solid than others, and then you get even more, you know, kind of a push from the post-summer blockbuster season, where sometimes you get blockbusters in September. Every, every, weird, or every, every once in a while, a studio will take a chance on a movie in, like, September or August 
because nobody else wants to put their movies in there because you know maybe you know you can come up with your theories maybe it's because kids are going back to school um you know yeah or people have spent all their money on vacations and stuff like that summer activities um so so that's Um, why people don't like to put movies there but every once in a while somebody the one that always comes to mind is when um marvel put out guardians of the galaxy in like august august yeah yeah. and it blew up that really skyrocketed the august um you know you know the august season the august month um that was what 2014 something like that and this and the same thing can be said for january sometimes i mean not necessarily for movies that release in january but a lot of times releasing putting putting a release out at the end of the year it will trickle into the new year and will continue to make money um but i mean it's uh yeah what has happened basically usually december wasn't a big big block a big big money making month because with the holidays and everyone was distracted by all that kind of stuff, people were still going to the movies, but they weren't put they weren't you know putting in the same amount of um, you know frequency of viewing like like the earlier part of the year. Basically, the end of the year was winding down, so there wasn't really you know a huge you know blockbuster swell of money making movies until 2015 when Star Wars Force Awakens came out and made, like, a billion dollars. And then, so then they were like, wait a minute, people want to watch movies in December now? So, therefore, that pushed a lot of movies that would have probably come out in December, they probably pushed them more into the dumping month known as January. And January was already a dumping month because all the movies that they that people, that the studios couldn't squeeze into the previous year were put in that month anyway. So, anywho, that kind of just squished even more. And also, they would put those movies in January because of, you know, like I said, the holiday months, people not spending money and whatnot. And typically, what's interesting is that a lot of horror movies drop in January. And I always thought that was kind of odd because it's, you know, further away from October, from a previous few months, as well as the following October. Yet, people still would go see them and they would make some decent cash because they were often, you know, cheap. Yeah you know, lower-budgeted, you know, Blumhouse-type horror movies would probably get released in January. But, um, so that's that. So, But I think we're, we're kind of just going to go back and forth or just some, some January movies that um, Stephen and I did some research on and discovered came out during that month. Yeah, I mean... Stephen, do you have a first Yeah, I mean, we, you know, you the, and the thing is, is what I what I realized in, in searching through January releases... Is that if you go back, if you go back to the to the old days, uh, that you know that idea wasn't really a thing yet because no, because no. they weren't this, weren't releasing think, nearly as many movies. Um, yeah, I don't think this happened until probably you know post seventies, yeah. maybe even post eighties. Just because you know, as we all know, the summer blockbuster didn't exist really until like the late seventies with Jaws and Star Wars and. Stuff like that. Yeah. So obviously, as the years go on, more and more blockbusters get released, more things get moved around and pushed, and all that kind of stuff. Money becomes the end all, be all of the studio cinema mainstream world. Yeah, and and, and, and you um, know they the studios figured out what were the best times, what, what were the biggest most amount of times people were, what time of the year people were going to see movies the most. So that the ideas changed of when to release movies, but back in back in you know before the seventies, you know during, you know. Movies would stay in theaters for for vastly longer amounts of time. You know, sometimes a movie would stay in theaters for a year, 
you know, might stay in the year for two years. I mean, it, so their idea of when the best release time was just when it was ready to go. You know, like I think, you know, it wasn't necessarily about strategic, you know, you know, points or anything like that because it was going to stay in theaters all year anyway. Um, yeah, and what is interesting is that that kind of led to a lot of, um, I mean, this is a whole other tangent, just the idea that they would probably spend the same film reels oh, over yeah. and over and over again to the point where they would just degrade and fall apart. That's why a lot of, you know, the old films, you don't have the original, you know, camera elements or the original masters or things like, or negatives, because they would just, you know, they would make so many copies from using them constantly mm-hmm. that they would just, you know, get worn down to nothing. Um, but, yeah. but yeah, if this go, yeah, just say like going back, the, the releases in January go back forever, and we're going to get into some surprises because I found some, some old oh, yeah, surprises. Yeah. Um, there's one I got here, but I'll let I'll leave that one for you. Um, okay, I, I don't know what it could I, be. I know but... I, you might already know what I'm about, All right, but I'll start with one here. Um, this is one me and you have talked about a little. We've talked about on it. I think we even did an episode on it. Um, if I'm not mm. uh, mistaken, we did it a, a couple Christmases ago. Uh, Shop around the corner. Uh, Nineteen forties. Nice. Yeah, I saw yeah, that too. Shop around the corner uh, with J- uh, James Stewart. Uh, we we talked about it. I think uh, a couple Christmases ago. Um, and uh, this came out in 1940 in January. So, um, you know, maybe back then it wasn't a big deal, but, you know, with time, you know, and how this movie's kind of um, still, you know, for, you know, maybe not for everybody, but for, you know, cinephiles, people that really, um, you know, keep up with classics and keep up with foreign films, things like that. Um, Shop Around the Corner is a great film, you know, um, and uh, I actually just ordered it myself <laughs> in the, in the, it, I actually coincidentally got it for yeah, Christmas. Yeah. So it the Blu-ray literally just came out. I want to say December 23rd, 2020 for those of you listening to this in the future at some point. Um the Blu-ray literally just came out. And, and uh, Steve and I literally yeah, just Yeah, Warner got Archive. It. Put out by Warner Archive, which it looks gorgeous. Yeah. It's gorgeous black and white. Jimmy Stewart is in it. Um yeah, we did talk about this movie coincidentally. So if you want to hear us talk, uh, yeah, it's a charming, charming, charming movie. movie. If you want to hear us talk about it in depth, going through the whole movie, go find that episode. It's it's uh, kind of one of them movies that isn't like too Christmassy. Like it's not a super Christmassy movie. Like it's not you know uh, you know the Santa Claus or anything. But it's set at Christmas time, and it's about the spirit of Christmas. You know more than anything, it's about people and interacting, and you know it's. It's a good. It's a good. It's a good movie. It's a really good. Movie. Coincidentally, the movie that I want to, you know, piggyback off of, that is, is actually the, the movie that came out of the following week in oh, nineteen. I think I know where this is because this <laughs> January this uh, so uh, Shop Around the Corner came out January twelfth, nineteen forty, I believe. This movie came out January eighteenth, nineteen forty, and this is His Girl yeah. Friday. Uh, starring uh, Cary Grant and uh, Rosalind Russell, uh, directed by Howard Hawks. And, yeah, this is a great, great screwball comedy. Um, This is just really fast-talking, great dialogue, constantly moving, super energizing movie. Um, This is definitely a movie I think we want to do an episode on sometime in the future. Um, because it's actually not the first adaptation of this story. I believe it's the second, but it's the most famous of the two. 
I think the first one was called Front Page and came out a few years before this movie came out. But this is one of the, I would say, quintessential, you know, early Cary Grant films mm-hmm. uh, in his career. And it really defines that the kind of exuberant, you know, z- almost zaniness that Cary Grant could perform on screen. And yeah, it's one of my favorites from his, his and one of my favorite Howard Hawks film. And yeah, it's really good. I was really surprised that it came out in January of 1940. Apparently, 1940s had a string of good January releases, like suspiciously notorious January yeah, releases. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, I mean, it, it didn't really matter that, that the idea of when it came out didn't really play into people's minds. I think more than just it just when it was ready to be done, they 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 got it in, you know, when it was time. Um, but moving on, um, I mean, I guess if we're going down the decades, I think I feel like we're both heading just down the timeline here. Um, I, right. I'm going to skip one because I, I think you're going to want to bring this one up, but I'm going to skip a little bit ahead. You, you'll you come back to the other one. Um, 1945's uh, movie we also have talked about, Laura, came out in January. Yes. Really? I did not yeah. know that. Nice. Um, you know, Laura's a, a, one of our favorite film noirs. We talked about it, what, a few months ago? Like, yeah, like two months and, ago. Um, not even. And, uh, you know, it's about a, you know, it's it's a, it's a in a lot of ways, it's it's a basic classic film noir uh, where somebody's murdered and then they, there's a mystery and then <laughs> it kind of gets a spin on We don't want to give away anything, but, it, you know, uh, you know, it kind of has a nice twist in the middle there and it's got some of the great some some great characters and Gina Tierney's gorgeous and fantastic and it, it's just a great it's a great film. Dana Andrews, um, I mean, like I said, we did an episode on it. Go back, check it out. Um, if not, go watch Laura. It's easy to find. You can. It's got I think a Fox release, and it's also been put out by Eureka um, in the UK. So, uh, and then I'm sure you can rent it. I'm sure very easily. Um, nice, nice. But I'm going to go back a little bit, just piggybacking. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, don't know why, I don't know why I'm using the same terminology again. Anywho, just to, just to plug our podcast once again, you know, a, pl- a plug within a plug, um, I'm going to uh, Shadow of a Doubt ah. came out January 15th, 1943, which we also did an episode on. It's also a film noir slash thriller directed by Alfred Hitchcock, starring uh, Teresa Wright and Joseph Cotton. Um, I believe it's Alfred Hitchcock's first American set film. We did a whole episode on it, so definitely go and check that out. But yeah, that came out in January. A Hitchcock film coming out in January. Just fine. I find I find that well, odd to me. You're um, gonna think that's odd, but uh, honestly, it, it happened again not too long after that. 1959, North by Northwest came out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Nice. So North by Northwest, once again, a Cary Grant film. Um, he. This is a remake of one of his own movies, right? He did. It's kind of thirty nine uh, steps. Thirty nine yeah. steps. So kind of a, it's like a pseudo remake, yeah. or like kind of like uh, it's weird because Alfred Hitchcock kept doing a lot of the same stuff over and over again when it came to like the wrong man scenario yeah, yeah. and like you know someone on the run or something like that. Um, so the thirty nine steps is like a like a first run of that concept, and then the North by Northwest is like a more polished like. Like Amer- well, it's Americanized. It's an Americanized <laughs> version because it was after he, you know, Thirty Nine Steps was before he came to America. Yeah, yeah. that was like in the thirties. Yeah. So, but it's like a more like refined, like, like um, you know, like he was at the top of his game versus this was, was right before he did Psycho. Kind of. 
I mean, he was about to do Psycho. And yes. He'd already done a bunch of great movies before that. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's... Yeah, starring, yeah, starring Cary Grant, Eva Marie Saint, James Mason is in the movie. Um, yeah, Mark Landau is also in the movie. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's an all-time, it's probably I mean, a lot of people's favorite I mean, Hitchcock We, we film. say, like, he's the master of horror or master of thriller, but, like, I mean, I mean, he kind of, I think, mastered that paranoid thriller more than anything. That paranoid, you know, where you mm. think somebody's after you or, you know, you know, or the kid, you know, the thriller more than the horror, I think, um, aspects of his, his films, I think are what he mastered. Um, but yeah, yeah. So Hitchcock in January is the thing. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess so. Uh, let me, let me see what else I have here. I have some more earlier stuff. Um, uh, the Grapes of Wrath. Ah, Talk about super classic, both literature and, um, you know, movie adaptation. Best Picture winner, I think, for 1940. Um, the Grapes of Wrath, directed, I want to say, by John Ford. I'm looking it up right now. Yeah, directed by John Ford, uh, starring Henry Fonda. Um, John Carradine is in it. Um, and it's the, yeah, like I said, it's an adaptation of the John Steinbeck novel all about... Um, the, this family trying to survive during the Great Depression as they move westward to California to find just, you know, jobs and a new life and all that kind of stuff. Really kind of a quintessential novel, of, you know, of the Depression era. And, yeah, it's a, it's a really great film. I think it really holds up because there's a lot of, you know, really good themes in it. And Henry Fonda is really fantastic in it. But, I but yeah, that came out in, in January. It came out in January, and it's a, um, a, um, Best Picture yeah. winner. Yeah, it had its New York premiere, January 24th, 1940. No. I got, so, so more early ones, um, you're gonna make me do this, because you didn't, you haven't said it yet, but Casablanca came out, came really? out in January. Yeah. 1943. Um, I'm gonna let you talk about this one because it's it's your favorite movie or my yeah it's a great it's one of my one of my favorite movies of all time yeah it came out January uh, what is that well, it, uh, January twenty third nineteen forty three it's a yeah come on it's Casablanca directed by Michael Curtiz Humphrey Bogart my favorite actress Ingrid Bergman Paul Henry uh, Claude Rains Conrad Veidt is in the movie Peter Laurie's in the movie um, Ezie Sakali is in it. Um, yeah, Sydney Greenstreet, who, yeah, who always seemed to play like kind of a nefarious, like, bad guy in well, every movie he was in <laughs> at the time. Uh, a Sydney Greenstreet, who may or may not have been the inspiration for Job of the Hutt in Star Wars. Mm. I don't know. I think that was a rumor I heard one time. Um, it, it just feels like that. Um, but yeah, it, this is an all-time classic for many, many different reasons. Also. Um, best Picture winner, I believe, as yeah, well. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we have won three Oscars, Best Picture, Best Director, uh, Best Writing, Screenplay. So, yeah, this is something I definitely want to save for if we ever do if we ever do an episode on it. We could really do a deep dive into it <clears throat> and kind of just go in and out of it. And how, well, well, you know, I'll, I'm going to, you is. know how it is. Yeah. I'm going to have to give you that movie one day because we've been picking movies uh every you know for each other or not for each other we do mm. that sometimes but every other week we pick 
you pick a movie and usually we try to pick something that the other hasn't seen um if we can which is hard sometimes because we both watch a lot of movies um so mm-hmm. yeah we'll probably get to Casablanca soon i'm sure but uh another bogard movie um this one's directed by john houston came out oh i know, know where you're going. came out in 1948 the treasure of santa madre yeah the, the treasure of the sierra madre which is really fantastic yeah. This is a movie I don't think gets talked about enough. Um, I think out of all the Bogart yeah. movies I've seen, this is my favorite of his performances, personally. It's really I mean, good. He's, I mean, I know we talked about In a Lonely yeah. Place, which is another great Bogart performance, but this one's also really, he, really good, starring Walter Houston, yeah. the father of John Houston. Um, he plays he, he plays yeah. really scuzzy in this movie, and I, and I love yeah. it. This whole movie's really yeah. scuzzy. <laughs> but, it's, about, yeah. it's about, you know... Um, finding a gold mine and hitting it rich, but also how like that cor- basically corrupts you. It, 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 you can tell it through, had inspiration. Your you can tell it inspired Tom, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson for There Will, will Be, be blood. blood. Yeah. Um, now, of course. Yeah. Even that though, movie's got a Citizen think, Kane connection, definitely. Yeah. Even though There Will Be Blood, I think is based off of a book called Oil. Yeah. I think it is. But anywho, it's kind of the same idea. The idea of greed. And money kind of corrupting you and just driving you mad, yeah. which is a really great concept. Um, yeah, great John Houston film. Um, let's see, there's nothing really else I have for the 40s, um, but something I do want to mention from, I mean, well, let's, let me jump to the 60s now. I believe it's the 60s, and this is, I mean, this may be, this was a surprise to me. Uh, when I was looking it up, when I was looking it up, um, nineteen sixty four, uh, Doctor Strangelove, yep. or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb, uh, Stanley Kubrick's great satirical take on the Cold War and like, yeah, you know the the fear of nuclear war and stuff like that between the United States and so and the Soviet Union. Um, this film uh, came out January twenty ninth, nineteen sixty four, starring. Uh, Peter Sellers, George C. Scott, Sterling Hayden, uh, Slim Pickens is in it. Uh, James Earl Jones, a really early role for James Earl Jones. It's one of the pilots. If you ever want to see James Earl Jones um, youthful in some way, there's, yes, very yeah, there youthful. he is. <laughs> very youthful. Um, yeah, and this movie is... It, I don't know if it's my favorite Kubrick movie, but if someone it's were up to there. be like, hey, what's your favorite Kubrick movie? What's your favorite Kubrick movie? I'd be like, uh, Doctor Strange. It's probably <laughs> you know my I mean? favorite. It's like the first one yeah. in my head. <laughs> Either that or, or Clockwork Orange. I mean, I rewatched Full Metal Jacket recently. That's that's one of my favorites. 2001, I think. is. It's weird to say if 2001 is your favorite or if it's his best. Yeah, I feel like I those know. are always two different things. Yeah, I don't know. Um, that movie is just so far ahead of its time that it's almost like it, you can't really quantify it in any way. Um but Doctor Strange Love is just, just an, an amazing movie to me. It's such a ballsy and ambitious film, you know. Making fun of the Cold War within the Cold War is 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 interesting to me because this is the post Cuban Missile Crisis. This is like, yeah. This what is interesting is this was originally supposed to come out. I want to say, in the fall of nineteen sixty three, and then President Kennedy got assassinated, and that pushed the release. And that's why I think that's why I, ever, I think that's why I came out in January. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, so it's it's an all time film. Peter Sellers plays like what does he play? Like three characters, four characters yeah, in this I think movie? No, three characters. Looks like yeah, he plays Lionel Mandrake, uh, President uh, Birkin Muffley, <laughs> and he plays Doctor Strangelove. So he, he was originally supposed to play the Slim Pickens character. Yeah. But apparently he got injured and couldn't like physically injured, so he couldn't do it. He couldn't sit in the couldn't sit in the plane or something like that. Um, but yeah, so so that's if we were ranking these, this was going to be pretty high on my list because that was our original concept for this episode. We were going to do our personal rankings, and this would have been one or no. two. All right, all right. Um, I'm going to move into the seventies. Um, okay. I didn't. Have, I don't have any seventies on my, okay. my right. list here. So um, the movie starring Jack Nicholson, The Last Detail. Ooh, now that's a movie. Yes, a very good movie uh, about uh, you know. I guess you could say it's about you know. You know, it's kind of a comedy. It's kind of a drama. Um, you got these um, militant officers that are like kind of like. Are they like, I, if I'm remembering correctly, delivering one of another, a younger soldier to like a court? Didn't he have like a court date or something? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's it's directed by Hal Ashby. Yeah, Hal Ashby. Uh, starring Jack Nicholson, uh, Randy, a young Randy Quaid before he lost his goddamn mind in yeah. this movie. Um, and there, Randy Quaid is the young uh, Navy, a Navy man. I don't know. Yeah, Navy man. Uh, Navy man who's. Um, He's going to be to. I think they're escorting him to prison. Yeah, he got. And it's just their yeah. journey to like getting him to uh, getting him to this place, and they just it's just them. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a movie. It's like a road trip movie. It's basically. a road trip movie. They're kind of like kind of letting him experience things, kind of giving him his last hurrah of sorts, like um, throughout the 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 trip. You know, they go to a bar, and he's never had a drink. At a bar because he's, I guess he's too young, um, and so they like, you know, he, it, it's a kind of a memorable scene where Jack Nicholson goes crazy, does his crazy thing, and goes crazy on the bartender. Um, but it's a good movie, good solid movie. Um, yeah, it's based off of a novel as yeah. well. Um, what I was saying, um, Richard Linklater's film Last Flag Flying was very kind of very similar to yes. to this. Um it was actually I think it was maybe done by the same same author. I'd have to look that up, but um it it was very almost like a spiritual sequel to yeah, cuz it was yeah, it was a screenplay by the same author and I think based off of a book by the same author, author. Yes. That's why people brought up last detail when they were talking about the this movie Last Flag Flying from a few years ago. Underrated movie, I think. Richard Linklater. Um, I guess, I guess, I mean, that's as good as a segue as I'm ever going to get. <laughs> that's as good as a seg- segue as I'm going to get for this next one. Let me, I'm going to just burst through to the other side here and go with um, probably my favorite of any of the movies I came across when it came to January movies, and that is Before Sunrise. Yeah. Richard Linklater's Before you Sunrise. You son of a bitch. Uh, yeah, I know. Some, I mean, I since I just dropped Richard Linklater... I might as well talk about it now. Um, <laughs> this movie is an all-time favorite yes. of mine. Like, if I was doing like an all-time top fifteen, top twenty movies, it's in there somewhere. 
Um, it's the first of his before trilogy um, that is, you know, has before sunrise, before sunset, and before midnight. I mean, if we ever get a fourth one, who really knows? The the time has kind of elapsed uh, to get a fourth one by now, but who ever, who knows if that'll ever happen? Star this one as well as the it's a, as its sequels stars Ethan Hawke and Julie Delphi, uh, Delphi, and they are they play Jesse and Celine, and in this movie they they they're two young people who meet on a train uh, traveling through Europe, and they spend like one night. Uh, in Vienna together, and it's one magical evening, if you will. It's one of the most genuine, like, sincerest romantic films I think I've ever seen, and will ever seen. It's just, it's just really, really authentic and genuine and magical, if that's too pompous of a word to use. But it's really good screenplay, really well acted, and it's just really fascinating how... Richard Linklater made a movie so simply yet so profound as well, where it's just people walking and talking for an hour and forty-one minutes. Yeah, um, if you're if you're yeah, into, I love yeah, this movie. I love it too. Some people don't get into it, but um, I don't mind a movie where people walk and talk as long as the, they're interesting people um, and they're you know people that you can see yourself in. That's for movies like that. That's the stuff I you know. Um, I get into is is seeing. I mean, it's good to it, it's it's nice when you can see some of yourself in your in the characters in the film. Doesn't mean that it has to be that way. I think some people I think no. some people rely too much on that idea that they have to uh, empathize or they have to relate to the characters in a movie for them to enjoy the movie. Um, yeah, I think there are movies that are going for that human connection and that are, that rely on that human connection. When it's such a personal, intimate film like this, I think that's necessary. But a lot of films, I don't think specifically need that, and some people tend to still look for it where it's when it's not there. Yeah, when it and when they don't find it, they automatically kind of dismiss the film. I mean, that's more kind of a, I guess, a criticism on film criticism. But this, I've always find myself going back to this movie and getting stuff out of it every single time I watch it. Um, for many people, Before Sunset seems to be their favorite of the trilogy, and I I, I don't doubt it because it's an amazing movie. This film for me, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I can't quite quantify what, uh, you know, how, why, I choo- why I choose I, this film now over Before what's Sunset. What's funny is, is uh, and, you know, I've seen, I've seen the movies, I think, twice, all three of them, at least twice, um... If I'm being honest, Before Sunset's my least favorite of the three, which is the Ooh. funny. I guess it's the hot take. Um, that is a hot, hot take. I mean, I mean, I get why people like it um, because it's kind of like the most uh, where they fall in love the most, like where they can actually um, – they actually – it's the meat of the story. Just put it that way. Mm, it's the it, it's it the really meat, is. Uh, and it and it's during the day. So they're walking. What are they in France or uh, I think or they're Paris. in Paris? Well, France. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You're right. You're right. <laughs> um, so they're what? Wa- I mean, yeah. I guess there are different places in France. I mean, yeah. they could have been. Uh, I don't know. They're definitely they're definitely in, in Europe. Um, and they're walking. Yeah, they're they're in Paris. They're yeah. in your. Paris. They're walking, and it's daytime. You know, the first movie, a majority of the movies at night, um, and which is great. Um, 
But I think that's part of what makes people lure, get lured into that second film is that it's so much brighter and it's so much more them with some age on them and now they've had experiences and now they're falling back in love with each other again. Yeah, um, yeah the first film has a young person's naivete yeah. to it. You know what I mean? Like they're just two young people searching for meaning in life and searching for whatever and then the second film takes place and we probably should say this takes place nine years yeah. later so they're you know like almost a decade older decade more experienced they have more you know they've lived more of their lives and they can they can talk about more you know different more mature things and more um they know what they they, they know, want I, they more know what they want now you know. Yeah, they're more, yeah, they're more mature, more intelligent, if you will. Um, and the ending of the second film, though, is really maybe one, maybe the best ending of all three films, though. I would uh, say maybe. Yeah, I don't want to sure. give it away because I would like people to see it. But it's it's an open ended ending, but it's almost like you know what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, honestly, you could almost string all three of these movies together and then say nine years later, nine. I mean, that's kind of what the what you can do with it. Um, right. But to me, I mean, like, a lot of people have trouble with the third film before midnight because it's mm. so, it's so, um, it's so. Let's just say it's life after it's, love. It's, it's, it's got a visceral, it's got <laughs> a, a, it's got a share, cynical visceralness to it that is hard for well, people to yeah, watch. Uh, the first two films are all about falling in love, and the third film is about what it's like to have lived with that love and what is past that love yeah you know what i mean like where life takes you after that does that love last is that love still powerful is that enough to keep two people together and it's tough to watch when you've you know you've watched these two people through these through these two films and you've loved watching them it's tough to see people go through that but it's also very realistic you know what i mean relationships are very complicated that's why i stay perpetually single (laughs) (laughs) just keep uh, it in the movies yeah, I'll just I'll just use that. I'll as just an watch other people. I just watch other people. I, I, people I know what happens. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I just watch other. I've seen movies. I know. What, I know what happens. <laughs> um, but it's just it's really realistic in in showing how even the most even the people who have what you believe to be the strongest and most powerful love can things can lead to compl- complicated areas. But that's a whole kind of yeah. minuscule we, breakdown. Yeah, of we should. We, we'll definitely hit the movies. <laughs> But yeah. moving on a much lighter note, it's um, my turn. Is your yeah. turn? Go. Because I've got. I got a lighter movie, movie for you. All right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 1981 Scanners. Is that lighter? I was just gonna say that. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna go Scanners. I was gonna go something else that I'll probably go right after. Yeah. But yeah, Cronenberg Scanners. Oh, yes. Nothing says light like heads. Yeah. There's nothing. Right? I mean, yeah, lighting it on fire. <laughs> bam. Pff. <laughs> but we know how much I've talked about. I mean, I love David Cronenberg. We did, um, we did. Uh, what did we do? Did we do existence? existence? Yes. And um, you know, I just love his. I love the themes that David Cronenberg explores in his films, usually about sex and violence and um, how that uh, ties stuff. into our psycho psych, psyche. And and even in his later films, he's delved in them in in more uh, direct ways. You know, whether it be like a dangerous method, you know. Um, but, yeah, with Scanners, it's just kind of, uh, to me, I look at it as the 1980s X-Men movie. 
you know, in a way, you know, you have, uh, that's not a bad comparison. You know, uh, fit, uh, you know, people that basically have the power of telepathy, um, and the government, uh, kind of basically kidnaps one guy that seems to have the ability, but seems to be a good dude. So they need his help to stop this guy that has telepathy. That's a bad guy. And they basically, you know, it's, it's kind of an X-Men movie in a way. Um, it's not obviously nearly as uh as a uh, graphic you know graphics heavy there's definitely some great uh, makeup effects and things like that oh yeah it's a it's a low budget like it's canadian yeah, it's not an action packed <laughs> it's not an action packed movie but it is you know got great atmosphere i think and there are some really cool iconic scenes i prefer, you know people talk about the head explosion but i like the scene where he uh he electrocutes the dude through the phone, like melts mm, and it like nice. melts the phone, and like and then and it explodes the like power. You know, it's a it's an awesome scene, um, but it's it's a it's a cool movie. I mean, it's not it's not like one of the mi- greatest mind blowing movies, but it's a cool movie. I <laughs> I, love I know, right? It's great. But <laughs> um, scanners, yes, you should watch it. Yeah, it's Cronenberg before, right before. I would say it's Cronenberg right before we know Cronenberg as we know him. That does, I, I think he started really, to get a little bit honed that. in more on his, like he like the films he did after Scanners are the films that we we know him for more yeah. than the films he did before Scanners, Scanners and before. Like after this, he did Videodrome, The Dead Zone, The Fly, Dead Ringers, Naked Lunch, um, you know, M Butterfly Crash, Existence, on and on. Before it's like Scanners is like that that kind of, like, mid-level point where, like, things before Scanners and after Scanners are are different are different in terms of, like, you know, production budgets were higher and concepts were more realized and stuff like that. Um, but Scanners is such a cool movie. Yeah. What is interesting to me is that if you've ever seen a poster for Scanners, they always... It's kind of spoiling the climax of the movie yeah. because it's usually just, like, a an artistic rendering of the... Of a, the climactic scene in the movie for for the most part a little bit or it's a hint at it um i just found that to be odd but yeah scanners is great um but the movie that i'm going to talk about is um is uh tremors yes coincidentally scanners tremors uh this movie i've rewatched recently because uh arrow put out a really great 4k release special edition with all kind of special features and it looks amazing by the way can't recommend that release enough but this is such a fun movie that came out in 1990 um kevin bacon's in the movie fred ward is in it michael gross reba mcintyre's in the movie um it's a really great like monster movie uh done in an ingenious way on like a lower budget and i know this i know it's gotten like several uh sequels and stuff like that um, but I've always I've only ever seen the original movie, and I'm almost afraid to see the sequels because because I know they were like straight to DVD uh, sequels. From what I understand, like they they're they're obviously not at the level I think, especially you know budget wise. Um, but I've I've heard that some of them are actually pretty fun, so they might be worth checking out down the road. So. Yeah, because the first film is fun. For those of you who don't know. Um, Tremors basically um, is this. It takes place in like this small, super small, rustic town, like out in the middle of like the desert somewhere. And basically, what happens is these giant 
uh, underground creatures or sandworms, if you will, kind of show up <laughs> and just start terrorizing them. And it's all about them trying to survive. So it's like a so it's like a monster movie, if you will. And it's just uh, just a lot of fun. It's a, it's a short movie. It's only an hour and thirty six minutes, so it moves like lightning. But I really really like it a lot. Um, it's kind of a quintessential, you know, January fun movie. Yeah, definitely. Um, once again, another light movie I can throw at you. Um, nice. Blood Simple, nineteen eighty five. Oh, came out in Damn. January. Uh, from the Coen Brothers. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, Jennifer Jason Lee's in this movie. I am I thinking of think the right that, actress? No, I'm Frances McDormand. Or, no, you're right, Frances McDormand. I should have known. Yeah. She's been in so many of their movies. She's in all. <laughs> of, well, she's married to Joel Coen. Ah, I think. Okay, I didn't know that. Let me actually look that up so I'm not. But Blood Simple's a, kind up. of a a crime thriller. Um, uh, you know, it's it's not super you know heavy on plot. It's it's about you know greed, like greed and you know betrayal, and you know it's uh, you know bar owner finds out his wife's cheating on him, and you know it, it just gets crazy. You know, um, it, it's just a cool crime movie. You know, I don't want to give too much away. Yes, Francis McDormand is married to Joel Cole, and they've been married since 1984. Coincidentally, when them, right around yeah. when this movie came out, wonder how she got the role. No, <laughs> I don't know how she no. met him. Um, but anywho, uh, yeah. So this is actually, I believe, the Cohen brothers' first movie. I think it's their first feature. And yeah. Th- yeah, this was actually done before they could be credit. Well, before they could be credited as the Cohen brothers, and one of them had would have to take. The I think credit, usually Joel Cohen. Would be Joel Cohen usually took the credit. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think he did. At least on this one, definitely. Yeah, this film also stars um, M. Emmett Walsh. Uh, Dan Hedaya is in it. Um, yeah, it's a really good, also uh, kind of crime neo-noir, if yeah. you will. Um, this also has a Criterion yeah. release from a few years ago, which I really, really have been wanting to get because I have the original Blu-ray release, and I know they did a new transfer for... Um, for Blood Simple, and I, heard, and I heard it looks really, really good. And I think there's an extra feature on there where I think Guillermo del Toro is talking about the movie, if I if I remember correctly. Um, it's Yeah, it's a really good film. And when we talk, we did a whole episode on first films yeah. uh, for directors, and I believe we mentioned Blood Simple uh, because it is, it is kind of an amazing first oh, film. Yeah. I mean, to come right out of the gate with... Um, with um with this movie is really kind of incredible. Um yeah, I'm just looking to see if that extra feature is on there. No, it's not. Apparently I don't know where I heard Stop Guillermo making up stuff. talking about Blood Simple. I'm probably making up stuff, Jeez. who knows? Well there's a conversation there's an extra feature called a conversation with Dave Eggers, but that's not um that's not Guillermo del Toro. Obviously. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, but all right, Andrew, move on. Move yeah, on. Yeah, move on. Move Find on. You're next. Um, next, let me let me go. Let me let, let's stay in the light realm. Um, I'm gonna go with From Dusk Till Dawn. Ah, I didn't. I didn't catch this one. Robert, which is the Robert Rodriguez film from 1996. Um, talk about you know 
January horror movie fun. This I was actually going to ask you, Stephen, is this film like a would you consider it a cult movie or is it just you know hmm. a good movie? I just feel like it's both. <laughs> I think I really I mean, do. I think, yeah, I think it's both. I mean, I think it's one of the movies that, uh, with time, has definitely gotten more popular because of you know George Clooney being in it. Of course, it's, it also stars Quentin Tarantino in an acting role. Um, I know he's not a thing. Is Quentin Tarantino is not? He's a great not actor. no. And what's funny is that originally he wanted to get he wanted to be an actor. Yeah. Before he became a director, and I every time you see him pop up, it's like huh, maybe now. Should. I mean, he, he, I just think of his Australian. He puts himself. He, puts, he gives accent. himself a cameo and everything, so it's like yeah, you know. I think of his Australian accent in Django and how terrible it yeah. was. Yeah. But then I also I also realized that apparently the person who was supposed to have that role just didn't show up that day, so he had to like fill in. But anywho, that's you, just you know, and, 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 and I would say I give I give him credit for having the balls to give himself the role in Pulp Fiction where he says the N word, like I like know multiple times. He really he really puts that in his movies, yeah. and probably shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> probably shouldn't. Um, but he does have a cameo in this. Not a cameo. He is. He, in the movie for a little while, I'm not gonna say anything. But he also co-wrote the screenplay with Robert Rodriguez, um, and well, he wrote this. He wrote the screenplay. Uh, Robert Kurtzman wrote the story. Yeah. So that that's two different people. But this is Robert Rodriguez, I think, follow up to Desperado, because Desperado was his, his technically second feature film. And yeah, this is a vampire film. For those of you who want to be spoiled. It's an action horror film. Came out January 19th, 1996. Like I said, George Clooney's in it. Uh, Quentin Tarantino, Harvey Keitel, uh, Juliette Lewis. Uh, Selma Hayek is in this movie. And you'll you'll see this all over the internet. There's always a still or always a gif or a meme or whatever of Selma Hayek in this film when she's like dancing with the snake and yeah. stuff like that. Looking just impeccably gorgeous as she, she still does and always probably always will at this point um danny trejo's in this movie for obvious he's reasons because he's in everything <laughs> tom savini tom savini who's been around forever he was he, he was doing makeup work i think on dawn of the dead back mm-hmm. in the 70s um michael parks is also in the movie um yeah this movie is this movie's a really great kind of cult movie there's all there have been several uh, like I said, uh, straight to DVD sequels. There's been a television series adaptation done by Robert Rodriguez for his El Rey Network a few years ago, um, which I think only lasted a couple of seasons. Um, but yeah, it's it's. I've always really loved watching this movie and rewatching this movie. Uh, I would really love for this movie to get a really really good uh, Blu-ray release. It's gotten. A couple of releases over the last several years, and none of them have really done the movie you'd think, justice. You'd think somebody like Arrow would put this out or something. It feels like an Arrow or a Sh- or a Scream Factory yeah. release or something like that. I hope someone somewhere puts this out in giving us a deluxe edition with like new special features. There's been there was a whole like documentary making of called Full Tilt Boogie, which could use like which could use like a, a release as well. Um, there was a DVD release. I think it was a two-disker that came out, you know, late 2000s or something. And that had Full Tilt Boogie as well as some other features. But then I think it was 
Echo Bridge or someone put out a Blu-ray release, had no features on it whatsoever. Do you remember back in the day where they would put like four movie like like they would put like from dusk till dawn and like three of its sequels like on like one disc or, or two discs and they would put out these packs and they would be in like the five dollar bin at walmart and stuff ah. and that's kind of how this movie was always treated and i always hated that because i thought this movie was good enough to get its own deluxe treatment um so yeah i would love for that to happen so that's from dusk till dawn check it out if you love kind of action horror movies um, yeah, directed by Robert Rodriguez, who I think is an under, still to this day, I think is an underrated uh, director. He's an underrated director, really but he, he, he just, I, I think he he has a hard time picking things that always work. Um, I don't know that his, he always picks the greatest. Uh... I will say this, um, his his catalog, his filmography, I, won't, I, I was going to say fluctuates, but it's very varied in terms of content. The more I look at it, I mean, he did all those Spy Kids yeah. movies. He did Shock Boy, uh, Shock Boy and Lava Girl, but he also did like From Dusk Till Dawn and Desperado and Once Upon a Predators. Time in Mexico. And yeah, and the, I think he produced that. Movie. Yeah, he directed. He directed he, Predators, the the, mm, the one with Adrian Brody it. in it, didn't he? Direct? I know the one you're yeah. talking about. Um, but he also, uh, uh, but then he did like uh, Alita: Battle Angel. Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. Um, yeah, and then he he just directed. An episode of The Mandalorian, yeah. and he's going to be doing. Isn't he going to be doing the whole uh, Boba Fett series? I think I've heard. I think that's by yeah, himself. I think so. Um, but um, I, I've always been a big, and he did Machete. Yeah, Machete kills. So he's done like everything. He's producing a Zorro TV series. I mean, he's look at his filmography, people. Um, also, he he's he. I what I've really loved about him is he's always been really open about making movies. I read his book. Um, uh, Rebel Without a Film Crew, of uh, it's just a diary of his making of El Mariachi, yeah. um, just all the steps he took to make that movie and get it like and get it sold and all that kind of stuff. How he had to he did like like you know those um, like you can sign up for like psychiatric psychiatric experiments for money, where people would like like drug test like test drugs on you and stuff. Like that's how he fund the movie. Um, but anywho, that's a whole trivia stuff. Yeah. I'm getting no, off it's here. It's right. um, it, One interesting point, you know, it, it's funny how as physical media has fizzled out that we're getting a lot more, I think, releases of of kind of cult movies and, sing, you know, like movie. But before, they all got grouped into these multi-packs that you were talking about. You know, like it, oh, I feel yeah. like we're actually getting yeah. more variety uh, now. Than we did before. Uh, I don't know why. I don't. I mean, what it, what I have found more recently, and you'll have to probably reel me in on this, is that the more you know, like I would say B movies, cult mo- cult movies of like the seventies, eighties, and nineties are actually getting treated much better when it comes to physical media in terms of like. Uh, the presentation of the movie extras and all that you know, kind of stuff yeah. then mainstream movies well, I, are getting I, I think i think maybe what's happening is is that the studios are not giving a shit about their physical media so they're just selling them off to these boutique labels and these you know and saying hey you can have the license to the physical media i don't care we'll make a buck here yeah, or there well, who cares uh, yeah, it's like, yeah, just as long us, as they have the streaming rights, you know, they have the streaming rights. They think they it, it doesn't matter because they're gonna nobody likes to buy movies anymore. So, um, 
Yeah, and and to be honest, it's probably more cost effective for them because all they have to do is just hand over, you know, the masters or the elements that they yeah. have. And then like the boutique labels can do whatever, do what they want with them in terms of like restorations or remasterings or whatever. I mean, unfortunately, sometimes they hand you masters that aren't very good and you kind of have to deal with what you have to deal with. But like I'm saying, like I was saying, they're treating them with a lot more respect and care and effort than I've seen mainstream studios treat mainstream movies nowadays um, in terms of like, you know, in terms of restorations and stuff like that. Uh, I find that studios... When it comes to their back catalog titles, they'll put maximum effort into their prestige back catalog. Like, they'll always keep putting out the same movies over and over again, um, but they'll just kind of leave the other ones, like, derelict. They'll just, like, push them off to the side and don't there talk hasn't about been, them. There hasn't like, been how- more releases of Die Hard than anything I've ever, you know. <laughs> yeah. Like, how many releases of Die Hard are we going to get? How many more releases of... I mean, we like now that 4K is around, all of the old back catalog stuff is being re-released in 4K. I mean, I know, you know, as a collector, I just rebought Jaws and Back to the Future in 4K. Jesus. You know what I mean? So they got my money, but it's like, how many more releases are they going to keep doing of their of those movies, but not giving us good releases of, you know, some other title in their back catalog? I mean, for years, I mean, for years and years, I always had that running joke, Stephen, about when is Roman Holiday going to get a Blu-ray release? And it finally, finally got it. So, finally got it. And, and like I said, like I said, I don't know if it was last episode or a few episodes ago, um, Paramount just woke up out of a several years long coma and decided to start re-release, start releasing their back catalog of titles. So, I don't know what's like going on Like I said, I, I think they're just, they're figuring they might as well do it and make a few extra bucks, I guess. I don't, I don't know. I guess so. But anywho, let's move on to you got uh, anything else? Yeah. Um, another kind of in the horror genre. Um, nineteen, mm. if I remember, nineteen eighty-seven, the the yeah. stepfather. Oh, um, ah. the original stepfather, not the one uh, that they re- not, not the, the remake. remake, but the uh, what is it, John Anthony Quinn? What what is this? Who is this? What is his name? Uh, t- Terry <laughs> M- McQueen. McQueen. Oh, Terry O'Quinn from Lost? Yeah, yeah, he's the one that plays the stepfather in the original. Um, This... Yeah, 1987 Terry O'Quinn. Is that... Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Well, this has a Shout... I think it's a Shout Factory release. Um, And it's about just a guy who's basically a serial murderer. (laughs) I mean, he... he, uh, I mean, it starts out, you know, and he's with his family, and everything seems to be all cheery, and then suddenly something switches his mind and he just murders them all and then he basically yeah. goes on to another family he like makes a woman fall in love with him and then he you know he's like the man of somebody you know and then and basically the kid comes becomes suspicious and you know tries to fight back and so it, it's just a straight up kind of like you know it's i wouldn't say it's a slasher but it's um it's definitely kind of just a straightforward movie about a psychotic man who goes around and murders families um, but it's got an inch, some interesting. It, it's a, a very, you know, um, great performance um, by um, Terry O'Quinn. Um, if you've seen him from Lost, this would be a good one to go back and watch. So, um, yeah, I recommend. 
Nice, nice. But I'm gonna go now. I'm truly gonna go lighter this time. I'm gonna go with the comedy. <clears throat> uh, Waiting for Guffman. Ah, yes. The Christopher Guest movie came out uh, January 31st, 1997. Uh, it's technically a 1996 release because it did get a few. Uh, looks like film festivals in 1996. Actually, got Boston Film Festival, and then Toronto, and then that was about. And then it got its theatrical. Uh, re- released January thirty first of ninety seven. Um, yeah, I mean, if you've if you've never seen the Christopher Guest movie, it's tough to explain because the comedy is so unique and so quirky and dry and snarky uh, and well written and satirical. Uh, but yeah, this movie stars Christopher Guest. Um, yeah, he's in the movie, but it has his usual troupe of like. Like Parker Posey, Catherine O'Hara, uh, Eugene Levy, uh, Fred Willard is in the film. Uh, it's just, it's a basically, basically in a small town, uh, this musical, produ- like local musical producer wants to is going to be putting on this play, and he thinks like this big like Broadway like a guy is going to be in attendance so he wants to make it the best he possibly can and it's just really funny it's a mockumentary type film which seems which which um Christopher Guest has done several times and he always has he always has the weirdest just oddball characters in his movies and and if you and his filmography is just filled with movies like this and this may be a lot of people's favorite my personal favorite from him from his films has always been um, Best in Show. I just think that's just really funny. It's all about a dog show and the pageantry and just zaniness around there. A Mighty Wind is another great film from him. Um, But yeah, I just really, really love his films. Um, So check it out if you haven't. Um, But I I don't know if... Would you say this is the best one to start with or would you start with another of his films? If someone had never seen... Christopher Guest film before? Uh, I mean, Waiting for Guffman's a pretty good start. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, it, he did a fish called Wanda too, didn't he? No. no. That was, who was that actually? Was he in that He's movie in that or? movie, I think. Maybe. I think that was done by, um, 1988, it was done by, um, oh, uh, Charles Crichton and John Cleese. Oh, okay, John Cleese. Yeah, because John Cleese wrote the story. Um, yeah. Hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I haven't seen it. I feel like that. Waiting for Guffman's a good one. I I always I, mean, I would always recommend Best in Show for people because Best in Show has a bunch of cute dogs in it, <laughs> and that's always nice to look at. At least if you don't like the movie, at least you can get to see the cute dogs. I, I mean, guess. Get something. If you on like it. dogs, I guess. Oh come on! Man. I like dogs. Um, All right. Well, yeah. So so got? we can move this forward a little faster. Uh, I got I, I got yeah, I got a few more left. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna group two. I'm gonna group two of these two movies because they're not necessarily like fantastic movies. Like, but I like these movies, so I'm just mm, gonna throw them one here. Um, <laughs> 1997. Um, Beverly Beverly Hills Ninja. <laughs> Oh, I love yeah, this movie. Yeah, with Chris Farley. I saw this movie so many times oh, yes, in the theater. Oh, yes, yes. I think I rented it, I watched it so many times. This isn't a great movie, but it's hilarious. Oh, yeah, but it's hilarious. Um, I don't know if that's nostalgic. It's nostalgic. It is, it is. 
Um, I, yeah. I still I would have been like around ten years old, so that's like a sweet nostalgic. Age. Yeah, and so this is about uh, it's kind of Kung Fu Panda if you think about it. Um, mm. But basically, uh, Chris Farley um, is become he tries to become a ninja in a. Uh, I guess it's in somewhere in China. Is is is? I guess that's. Well, I would say is Japan, it Japan? But... I don't know. Yeah, that's where the ninjas. Is that the word? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about ninjas. Um, <laughs> but um, basically, he tries to go on like like a quest to prove that he he's you know got what it takes, and his brother, his you know kind of adopted brother. Uh, goes and kind of goes to America. He's played by Liu Kang from Mortal Kombat. <laughs> Talk about a blast from the know, past. Right? Goddamn. Um, and he goes and kind of, you know, helps him out without him knowing. And it's it's got some great uh, physical comedy. Um, and you know, if you love Chris Farley, you, you know you'll be into this movie. I think. Um, and then the other movie I was going to group with it, which I actually think is a pretty underrated movie. Is uh, from the same year, and it's called Desperate Measures. Mm, never seen it. It's uh, it's got Michael Keaton and Andy Garcia in it, and it's oh, it's about uh, it's about a Andy Garcia plays a cop whose son uh, needs a bone marrow transplant, and so they find out that a match that of his is from a kind of like a high level, you know, criminal, um, played by Michael Keaton. And so basically the movie's about how he you uh, Michael Keaton's character uses this um you know att- this attempt at he he allows them to take bone marrow from him so they had to take him to the hospital but then he turns it into an escaped attempt. And so the whole movie's mm. in like a hospital and they're trying to find him and he's trying to escape the hospital and it's also about the morality around saving the kid and stuff like that. So like it's it's an exciting it's a cool action movie I like it it's a it's a it's a a fun one yeah. nice so I'm gonna go well one we didn't mention early 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 super early on uh, a silent movie uh, a movie that I think believe we've talked about on the podcast as well that is Charlie Chaplin's The Kid also came out in January check yes, out that yes. episode I believe we did about it um, also I'm I'm gonna group these two together because one is the first movie one is the second movie and yeah this is more we're talking about more modern modern movies now because we're winding down the podcast but Paddington and Paddington 2 are probably two of the more delightful like delightful. films you'll ever see you'll ever see the you'll ever see just super super happy <laughs> movies very emotionally heartwarming and beautiful films a wonderful casts in both Paddington and Paddington 2. Um, honestly, I think these are two of the more, you know, f- underrated family films that I think should should get more notoriety. Uh, one came out in 2014, and the other one came out, what was it, 2018? Yeah. Or so? Um, just wonderful films. Um, and then there's one, there's an, I mean, completely switching, yeah, 2017 was Paddington 2. Um, these movies star like Sally Hawkins is in it. Um, uh, ben Wishaw does the voice of Paddington. Um, you know, Hugh Bonneville. It's a wonderful, wonderful films. But now completely switching gears here. Completely. And kind of what, what I think is an important movie for many different reasons. <laughs> and, and this is because it kind of like gave studios and people 
the mindset that perhaps January isn't the isn't the uh, dumping ground or you know degenerate movie month that we all thought it was, and that is Taken, hmm. starring one Liam Neeson. And the reason why I say this is an important movie, it's because of that mindset, and then now this now now it has changed, you know, studios thinking that okay maybe we don't have to dump our shitty movies into January. We can actually put a good movie in January and it'll work. Um, and also, it, this movie functioned as a second act of Liam Neeson's career where he's now an action star. I mean, he was always... I mean, granted, he was in The Phantom Menace as a Jedi Knight, kind of an action role. But I don't think Liam Neeson was ever really quite an action no. actor before Taken. Yeah, I... And this was 2008, for those of you keeping... Well, 2009, actually, for those of you keeping track. Yeah, and, you know, I, the thing is, is you know, it, you could say based off the fact that this Taken sequel sucks so much that maybe... Yeah, I was just going to mention that, that, that too. That, the, the sequels suck. Don't watch yeah, them. <laughs> that, that maybe this was a, an accident, but... Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, yeah, but it was a happy accident. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when I say the sequels suck, I mean, then I don't know what happened. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like I, like the second movie, I, uh, I, the second movie has one of the worst edited car chase sequences I've ever seen in any movie ever. So so bad, um, and but Taken is so such a tight, like ninety minute thriller, bit of a throwback if you will to the kind of the ninety minute thrillers perhaps of the nineties. But for those of you who don't know, basically Liam Neeson used to be like a CIA agent, so he has all of these badass like CIA skills. Where he, <laughs> where what happens is his daughter gets <laughs> you'll never believe this, Stephen. She gets taken mm. while on vacation in Europe. Um, not the best place to go. Um, what frustrated me about the sequels is they kept going back to Europe. Taken again. <laughs> It made no sense yeah. why these people weren't super traumatized and like super protective of their daughter after that first yeah. film. Uh, the reason why I say that, I'm a bit of a spoiler here, Stephen. She almost gets sold, sold into sex slavery and sex trafficking in Europe. Yeah. So, yeah, once something like that happens, you may not want to go on vacation there ever again. I don't know, man. Apparently, in the sequel, we it, have to do it. It happens here in America too, so I guess you really, Great. really not safe right, anywhere. But, um, no, but I'm just saying, like, like I just like the sequels made. No, that's why the sequels partially made no sense to me because it almost seemed like we're recycling the same plot over and over again, as if the characters have amnesia. And then I remember the third movie, if I'm thinking of the the right one, is basically the future. Well, it, it also I remember a scene where she throws grenades on buildings or something like it was okay. Oh, that was the second. It, yeah, movie, yeah, God, the movies are terrible. Um, yeah, like her dad. Yeah, her, so her dad gets kidnapped. And in order for, like, him to, like, know her location or something like that, or, no, or she get I don't know, something happens where in order for him to hear where someone is, she has to, like, make noise. So she starts throwing grenades off a rooftop in a busy populated city, <laughs> probably killing mass oh, amounts God, of people. Oh, God, it's so stupid. Um, it yeah. really is. But and, anyway, that's the, and that's the moral the, of the story is that we, we get into our dumping grounds the further along we... Yeah, these a lot of these movies are do have their faults. Yeah. Um, the the, la <laughs> the last one I have listed here, you know, obviously we're going to miss a lot of stuff. I didn't scour the, the internet for every January release I thought were pretty good. And, of course, I haven't seen everything, but... 
The last one I got down here is one that I I like also. Not not a uh, uh, high quality. You know, it's it's a movie I like. It's called right. Daybreakers. Um, oh, I think nice. it's a underrated uh, vampire film. Uh, 2010. I got Ethan Hawke once again back on our right. list from January. You know, from before sunrise. He's always and around. um, you know, it's basically about how vampires have taken over, but. Now they're running low on human blood, so they have to like start coming up with like alternative uh, ways to get blood, and then it turns. There's there's a couple of different storylines, but basically, um, some some I guess you could say the some of the vampires that are going, um, I guess you could say hungry, are becoming like feral. <laughs> you know, they're becoming like the monster versions of vampires instead of the more eloquent versions. Um, Happens it happens to the best of us, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and you know, it's, it's there's like the last little bit of human resistance that are involved in the storyline too. Um, I think it's an underrated vampire movie. I think it's cool. It's slick. Um, yeah, I, I I do tend to agree with you. It is it is a rather underrated vampire film from the last decade or yeah. so. Um, it's, is Willem Dafoe in this movie? He, he is. He is. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, Another one that I, I think the last one on my list coincidentally came out a couple of years before this, and this is another kind of, I mean, it's a horror movie, a Cloverfield. Ah, 10 Cloverfield Lane? No, no. Oh, the original the, Cloverfield. The original, Clover, the original Cloverfield, um, directed by Matt Reeves, yeah. I believe. Um, is it Matt Reeves? It's, or, it's, it, yeah, directed yeah. by Matt Reeves, but written by Drew Goddard. Yeah. That's that's and the produced by J.J. Abrams, <laughs> and produced by J.J. Abrams, and yeah, this came out in January of two thousand and eight, and I remember that because I went and saw this movie in theaters in January. It, this of was a, this was a big this was a big movie. Um, it yes. was you know uh, mostly controversial because of its camera movement style. Yeah, it's a it's a it's one of those found footage films. Yeah, where where the two thousands were full of them. Because people loved like that that whole kind of subgenre in the horror yeah. horror thriller you know field was uh, but this, super but this popular was post post uh, uh, Blair Witch yeah Project. but this was an attempt to do found footage in a higher budget way you know yes. like usually there and a monster movie version yeah so it was it was something that was a little new and different with the messing around with the genre and I. I personally liked it when it came out. I still like the movie. Um, I can understand why maybe some people have a trouble watching it because it is shaky cam. You know, there's a lot of that, and you know, you can get nauseous while yeah, maybe while watching it. But I mean, maybe things won't be so clear to you. But it kind of, I think that's the point of it is to keep you off kilter. Yeah. You know, with the shaky cam, you're like, I don't know what's going on, what's happening. I mean, oh, you know, just to keep you. Keep you kind of on the edge of your seat, if yeah. you will, and and there have been uh, how do I say this, Stephen? Sequels in quotes, they, it, basically. I mean, they're 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 movie. in they're like in universe like spinoffs, um, but they were movies that weren't necessarily originally supposed to be sequels or in the Cloverfield universe, and they were manipulated to be. Well, the Clover, sp- specifically the, the second film, um, it started out yeah, yeah it, as a as a like Ten Cloverfield Lane. Until I don't want to spoil it, but I'll just say this: 
like I don't think that a movie was originally supposed to be called Ten Cloverfield Lane. <laughs> like I think it was supposed to be called something else. And the third movie, uh, the third Cloverfield movie, which is was the it, paradox, was the out? paradox. Yeah, yeah, was it Cloverfield Paradox or something like that? Yeah, the Cloverfield Paradox, which takes place in space, like they just intercut like monster footage on Earth to make it a Cloverfield movie. And it looked really, like, ramshackled together, like, ramrodded together. Like, they just really forced it. Um, I don't know why they just don't make, they didn't just make direct sequels. Because I think the movie had enough, like, left you with enough questions and enough wondering as to, like, okay, where did all of this start? Where is all of this going? What's happening with other people in other places? You know I mean? You could have made those straight-up direct sequels instead of forcing these other movies to be direct sequels. I, I would say 10 Cloverfield um, Lane works. Um, Although 10 Cloverfield Lane is an awesome it, movie. It, it, it I really works. Like that movie the, a lot. Though it is kind of shoehorned at the end. Um, I, I th- yes, that was what I was trying to I, I think. I, I, think it, I, I think it does work, though. Um, yeah, John Goodman is amazing yeah. in that movie frighteningly amazing um um who uh, uh mary elizabeth winstead is in that film as well she's always been one of my favorites ever since uh scott pilgrim versus the world and i think she's always, i think she's a fantastic actress and she's in that movie as well yeah it, it's really that's a really good yep. sequel like i'm willing to forgive that movie because it works yeah uh, whereas the cloverfield God, paradox doesn't good. work doesn't i do work hope they make more movies in the universe though I do, I do so too. I, I thought they were trying to make a Cloverfield TV series, but may I, maybe I trimmed that up. I know they were trying to do a Tremors TV series yeah. on FX with Kevin Bacon back in his original role, and they shot a pilot for it and everything, and they just didn't pick it up to series, yeah. which is unfortunate because that would have been that would have been a really cool like sequel series. I think sequel series right now are hot too. So I don't know what FX was yeah. thinking. Well. That's it, I think. I think we've uh, we, we've talked about a good amount of movies there. We got a good twenty five yeah. movies or so in there from January. Um, yeah. Uh, if there was any that we missed, anything that has popped up in your head now, of course we we specifically kind of were picking releases that were American released, uh, not necessarily. I mean, obviously the releases happen in all different times of the year and all over the country, uh, all over the world. So. Um, you know, these were more specifically released in January in America. Um, so right. keep that in mind. Um, but if there's some that we've missed, please uh, throw them at us in, in, in comments. Um, yeah. Anything else? No, that's about it. I'll say we, yeah, it was really tough to go back and find, you know, do a thorough, thorough look without, without deep, deep diving into individual January, you know, month, year by year. Um, basically when you did kind of a broad overall search for this type of stuff, you kept seeing the it's, same movies yeah. pop up over and over again. And they're not always, <laughs> really there are, and they're not always that great of movies either. You're like, eh. No. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I think, I don't know. My mindset was to find movies that, you know, I liked yeah. that I had watched and that I, and that I enjoy. Um, that was my mindset going into it. And my mindset was also like. You know, I don't want it to be a, a movie that premiered at a film festival or a movie that was kind of a holdover from, you know, like an awards, you know, sometimes, you know, award movies will get uh, mass released in January and when they had limited releases in December or November. Yeah. 
I didn't want any of that stuff because that stuff tends to be misleading. Yeah. Because, yeah, those movies are great. They're they're awards contenders. Of course, they're going to be great movies. But give me a theatrical, like a wide theatrical release that was originally in the month of January. Yeah. I'll say this though: the month of February is is a more is is different. Um, when I was looking at lists, they kind of lumped January and February together, and I kept seeing Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> that came out in February yeah. of all months, and that ended up winning Best Picture. And I'm like, that would never happen today. There's no way a February movie would be remembered in, in by uh, the Academy Awards in the following Closest year. Closest we got was Get like, Out recently. It was like Get Out came out like really yeah. early in the year and and got... got. I think that was a February yeah. release, yeah. Um, I mean, and February is not really a dumping month anymore because you get you get big movies put out in February. Well, De- March Deadpool now. changed that. Deadpool. Yeah, mm. Deadpool changed that, and that was only what uh, five yeah. years ago now. I keep I keep having to do that mental math now, where it's one more year uh, away from a specific year than it was before. Like if we had done this, uh, you know, a month ago, I'd be like, oh yeah, uh, Deadpool came out four yeah. years ago. Now it's five years ago. It's the way time yeah, works. Time sucks. Ass. Makes me do math. I don't want to do math. I don't like math either. Steven. Well, I'm going to math us out of this. Um, yeah, yeah. Where, where can we find you, Andrew? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Capzilla06, as well as my YouTube channel, Capzilla Productions. And you can find me on Facebook, Stephen Billings. You can find me on Instagram at Cinema Discovery Project or on Letterboxd at Cinema Discovery. Um, you can find the audio for this podcast on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Thank you once again for listening, and hey, keep on watching them movies. I know I will.